Welcome to the Gateway Church Podcast. We're so glad that you're here. We pray God speaks to you through this message and through His Word today. For more information about our church, please visit us at gatewaylife.com. Now let's tune in to this week's message. You guys ready for today? I hope you are because this weekend, for some reason, God's wanted to show up and do something a little different. So uh, we're going to end up our series in the book of Psalms, and we're going to end it with the 51st Psalm. So for some of you, you may know this Psalm. Some of you are getting ready to become very closely associated with it. So here's what it's going to look like today. We're going to go on a journey today with a man. And as I outline scripturally his life, I want you to ask two questions. Number one is, um, is he really sorry? Is he really sorry? Then the second question is, can he really forgive? I want you to just kind of hear the story out. You make the decision. And then toward the end, I'm going to invite you into the story about your own life. But we're not going to start reading the very first word of the very first verse. We're going to read the subtitle. So right under, it says chapter 51, there's a subtitle. And I want you to look at the screen. Here's what it says. For the choir director, which is implying that this is a publicly sang song that the choir director is supposed to lead people in. A Psalm of David regarding the time Nathan the prophet came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So it's already pretty heavy already. Psalm 51 is the fourth of the seven what's called penitential psalms. There's seven of them out of 150 psalms that David penned along with other writers. Psalm 6, 32, 38, 51, 102, 130, and 143. Seven of them. This is probably the paramount. Psalm 51 and Psalm 32 are kind of co-booked together. They tell the same story. The historical setting of when I did Psalm 23 was about a man that was in the middle of a circumstance. You might remember I said that Psalm 23 was written when David's son Absalom was trying to steal the kingdom from him. Psalm 51, before we read verse 1, first word, I want to set it up. And here it is from the book of 2 Samuel, starting in chapter 11, verse 2. Late one afternoon after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, one of David's mighty men in his army. Then David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. Uriah was at war, and the Bible says that most, at this time of the year, most kings were at war. Guess who wasn't? David, he'd taken a nap on the roof. He sees her. He messes up, and he says, you know what? we got to do something about this. So he sends for Uriah to come back home, hoping that he and his wife will be together and cover up this indiscretion. Uriah refuses to sleep with his wife while he's on furlough because he has integrity, he has devotion, and he has a sacrificial spirit. He's considered one of David's top 30 men in his army. In fact, look at Samuel, 2 Samuel 11, verse 11 says, Uriah replied, The ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents, and Joab, my master's men, 
are camping in the open fields. Now pay attention to who he gives honor to, Joab, the captain. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. So David's devious plan starts to fall apart real quick like, and so um, he says, you know, guys, we gotta do something about this. So he sends Uriah back to the battle. He notifies Joab, the commanding officer, said, I want you to put him in the very front line when the battle gets hot, then I want you to back off and I want you to let him be killed. Bathsheba becomes pregnant with David's baby and her husband's life has been taken. Scholars believe that from the time that this took place to the writing of Psalm 51 is somewhere between nine and 12 months. And you can figure that out in just a moment because in 2 Samuel, we jump to chapter 12, verse one. So the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell David this story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich, one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. Notice the emphasis, he had a lot. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. He raised that little lamb and grew up with his children. He ate from the man's own plate, drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day a guest arrived at the home of the rich man, but instead of killing an animal from his many, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. David was furious. Surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and for having no pity. Then David, then Nathan said to David, you are that man. The Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? And watch the terms that are used that God gives to Nathan as he is sending these messages now to David face to face. You have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. You did it secretly, but I will make this happen to you openly in the sight of all Israel. Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you and you won't die for this. Nevertheless, you've shown utter contempt for the word of the Lord by doing this, your child will die. After Nathan returned to his home, the Lord sent a deadly illness to the child of David and Uriah's wife. David begged God to spare the child. Watch the words. He went without food and lay all night on the bare ground. The elders of his household pleaded with him to get up and eat with them, but he refused. And then verse 18 says, then on the seventh day, the child died. Remember the message is, are you really sorry? And can he really forgive? Now, it's, you have to realize that every word in scripture has weight. It has purpose. It says on the seventh day, one day short of receiving his name, as was Jewish custom, the little baby boy dies. The perpetuation of a sordid legacy is ended. No name no future, no son. Most scholars believe David wrote Psalm 51 during that seven day period while writhing on the floor, not eating and pleading with God. Now we can read it. Verse one, have mercy on me, O God, because of your hesed. It's interesting how that none of us, when this series, we started it, none of us were going this direction, but it's 
how God has just knitted all the pieces of this. This has become a heart message out of the Psalms. Because of your unfailing love, because of your inexpressible, because of your irresistible love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sin. The definition we've been using for Hased is when the person from whom I have the right to expect nothing gives me everything. David knew what was coming his way and he pleads for the life of this baby. He deals with the sin that Nathan has confronted him with and David remembers God's Hased, God's inexpressible love and the ability of a God that he knew that that God could turn his heart and tune his life back into alignment. Maybe David reflected on his great-great-grandmother, a Gentile prostitute by the name of Rahab, who also asked for Hesed. You say, wait a minute, a prostitute? Yes, listen, in Joshua 2 and verse 12 says, now swear to me by the Lord that you will give Hesed to me and my family since I've helped you. Give me some guarantee that when Jericho is conquered, you will let me live. Maybe David was reflecting upon Saul, how that Saul's hatred of him and how Saul's own son, Jonathan, had befriended him in spite of his father's hate. And David knew how to ask for Hesed in 1 Samuel 20 and 80. He says, show me this Hesed as my sworn friend. Show me your loyalty. Show me your irresistible love. For we've made a solemn pact before the Lord, or kill me yourself if I've sinned against your father. But please, don't betray me. In verse 1, David starts crying out to God for what I believe is what's called true repentance. True repentance. It's the realization of sin when it is boistered with the realization of the grace of God. See, here's something I know. I can know theology, but not understand the practice. I can parrot the words of repentance and grace and justification and not embrace and live by their truth. David starts out writhing on the floor, struggling with God saying, have mercy on me because of your unfailing love. Verse two, he turns his words to terms that begins to show what he's feeling inside. Wash me from, wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. Wash me clean. The interpretation there is David starting to feel the uncleanness, the dirt of his actions. And he's using terminology that's removing something. Purify me from my sin. Now, when you hear the word purity, what does the word purity or pure or purify bring to mind? Does it bring shame? Does it bring self-righteousness? Does it bring gratitude or curiosity? You see, purity is more than sexual ethics. Purity scripturally that David was referring to was from the Exodus and Leviticus. When items were brought to the temple, they were to be pure as unto the Lord. And the word pure meant unalloyed, nothing mixed in, pure gold, pure silver. He says, God, I'm asking you to wash me. I'm asking you to purify me. 
I'm asking you to make me clean, uncluttered, with single focus for God and for God alone. C.H. Spurgeon, on this very verse in his book, The Treasury of David, said that David was saying, Lord, if washing will not do it, try some other process. If water avails not, let fire, let anything be tried, so that I may but be purified. Rid me of my sin by some means, by any means, by every means. Only do purify me completely and leave no guilt upon my soul. It is not the punishment he cries out against, but the sin. Many a murderer is more alarmed at the gallows than at the murder which brought him to it. Not so with David. He is sick of sin as sin, and his loudest outcries are against the evil of his transgression and not against the painful consequences of it. David is crying out, God, I'm asking you because of your mercy and because of your unfailing love, I'm asking this, would you just wash me? I know there's a baby in that other room in there. And I know how the baby got here. But you and I, God, have got to do some business here. I need to be washed and I need to be unalloyed. I need to be pure. Verse 3, for I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. I, I love the fact that this is where you know where you're dealing with sin in your life. I recognize, and then he calls it out, my rebellion. But then he says something I think is interesting. Remember, nine to 12 months. For months, he has had to live with this. He's had to be in the middle of it. He's had to have the replay of that very act in his eye of what he did and what he did to Uriah and all this transpired with his men. And he says, God, I'm not looking for a scapegoat anymore. I recognize my rebellion. And he says, this thing that I did and these things that I've done are haunting me day and night. You say, well, is that good or bad? Because here's what I do know. True conviction always precedes true forgiveness. And David's acknowledging that. I have now done something that I'm asking you, God, that I am dealing with the guilt of a man that was one of my top military officials. I had him murdered. I'm dealing with a woman that I watched for nine months in her pregnancy, and now I'm looking at this baby. He's feeling the pain as a leader who has betrayed his army and betrayed his people. And he says, I recognize my rebellion and my, this thing that I've done, it haunts me day and night. What about you? Is there something in your life that haunts you day and night? Is there an act? Is there an instant replay film? Are there words that you can still hear them, who said them and how they said them to you that are haunting you day and night? You don't have to keep living like that. There is restoration. Again, this message is, are you really sorry and can he really forgive? I have a question for my life and for yours. Is a fleeting moment of sinful pleasure worth the price to you? But what about the price to others? You see, sin has a very high price. We read it in 2 Samuel, it says, David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Yes, but the Lord has forgiven you. You won't die for this sin. 
And then in Psalm 32, which is pretty much Psalm 51 written in another form, he says this, finally, I confessed all my sins. Notice, David was starting to meter out the level of guilt that he was dealing with, and he was kind of just parsing out the sins. He says, now I've got to the place that I've confessed all my sins to you, and I stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. First John in the New Testament makes it very clear that the same path of forgiveness is a universal truth across scripture. If we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. David wasn't asking for cheap forgiveness. He's coming with a broken heart. See, David had taken two paths that I believe any of us can travel on. The first is confrontation that leads to complicity. You see what do you mean? Well, when David realized what he had done, he calls together and he asks Joab, he says, I'm asking you now to do me a favor. Put him on the front. He becomes complicit with other people. He became complicit with his palace team because the moment that they found out that Uriah was dead, he says, go and get her and bring her to the palace. And he marries Bathsheba almost instantly. You see, confrontation that leads to complicity leads to continual coercion. It doesn't stop. If you're confronted with something and it leads to complicity that you keep trying to commit this area over and over, you'll find coercion keeps stepping in and you won't get past and there won't be that ability to know the heart of God. But the second path took place. It was confrontation by a a prophet named Nathan, which led to conviction, which led to God's compassion. And I believe that over this message, there's something that will stir inside of some of you sitting here, maybe every one of us in this room, that I believe there'll be a confronting of the Holy Spirit that's going to lead you to a moment of conviction. And then instead of shame, you're going to begin to feel the chesed of God, the the unfiltered love of God that's going to start calling you in and say, my son, my daughter, I'm trying to bring you back. Verse 4, he says, against you. And you alone have I sinned. I've done what is evil in your sight. You'll be proved right in what you say. And your judgment against me is just. I think it's interesting that one of the signs of true forgiveness is when you get to the place that you come before God and say, Lord, whatever you decide, whatever you say is right, and whatever judgment against me, it is just. But there's a problem with this verse in verse 4 that troubles me, that if you read it, you'll say, wait a minute, against you and you alone have I sinned? What about it, Uriah? I mean, what about Bathsheba? What about Joab? What about the nation? What about the military leaders that you've, you've done this awful thing too? And he says, against you, God, you alone have I sinned. None of these indictments were as serious as David's offense against God. You see, all sin by nature is always against God. David's not denying the pain to others. David is prioritizing his order of responsibility. God, I sinned against you. 
It's you first. Verse 5. For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. Now, you can read this and say, well, was David's mother immoral? No. This does not mean that there was any problems with his mother. It doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with marriage or childbearing, that it's a curse. Because even scripture in Psalm 127 says that children are a gift from the Lord, they're a reward from him. What this is leaning to is I was born a sinner is the doctrine of original sin. You say, what does that mean? From the time all of us were born, we have a natural bent towards sin. You don't have to teach a child to do wrong. You don't have to teach a child to lie. You don't have to teach a child to be selfish. David recognizes that sin pervades humankind as a universal condition from the very outset throughout our existence. Sin is everywhere and in every one. Romans 3.23 and Romans 6.23 make that very clear. David confessed, God, I'm owning the fact that there has been this propensity in my life and I've acted upon it. Verse six, but you desire honesty from the womb teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me, again, second time he's used that term, from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me, again, second time, and I will be whiter than snow. Look at the terms he uses. God, I realize the gravity of what I've done. I realize there's a sick baby, and that's on me. But I'm asking you, is there any way you could purify me. Could you wash me? In fact, I don't want to just get washed. I want to be whiter than snow. Give me back my joy again. And then he makes a statement. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. You said, that's anecdotal. No, that's truth. Don't keep looking at my sins. David had just said, look, God, I'm going to confess to you, my sin is ever before me night and day. But God, I'm asking you to blot out I'm asking you to wash, I'm asking you to purify, and I'm asking you, God, don't keep looking at my sin. Remove the stain of my guilt. You can attempt to cover your sins on earth, but you cannot cover the record in heaven. There's a phrase in the beginning of this. It says, um, you desire honesty from the womb. If you have a different translation, it probably says from the inward parts, and that's the better translation than the New Living Translation. What it's saying is that God longs honesty within the recesses 
of the place of wisdom, of truth, and of response to God. Remember, David's pleading, fasting, writhing, leaning into the hesed of God. And he says, God, don't keep looking at my sin. Remove the stain. Which brings me to a question. How does God see and how does God deal with sin? Does he really forgive? Isaiah 43 and 25, God says, I, yes, I alone will blot out your sins for my own sake and will never think of them again. Isaiah 44 and 22 says, I have swept away your sins like a cloud. I've scattered your offenses like the morning mist. Oh, return to me, for I have paid the price to set you free. Acts 3.19 says, now repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. 2 Corinthians 7 and 1, because we have these promises, dear friends, let us cleanse ourselves from everything that can defile our body or spirit and let us work toward complete holiness because we fear God. Psalm 51 is full of pictorial words. David used it in verse 1, blot out the stain. Wash me, he said twice. Purify me, unalloy me. And every one of these words express the seriousness of the sin, but yet the greater lengths that God goes to to remove them. Verse 10, he says, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. When Preston sent out and said, hey guys, I want us to look at this series on Psalms, he said, I want you to pick the Psalm that you're passionate about. And I think within 24 hours, I sent back and said 23 and 51. Because 51, I have literally taken this Psalm and come before God. And this verse is one of my favorite. Create in me a clean heart. It's exact Hebrew terminology used in Genesis 1 and 1. What only God can do. David says, create. You know what I've done to this heart, God. You know the damage that I brought on myself. You know the way that I can before me day and night. You know what I, I'm asking you, God, for all these purity things right now and to unalloy me. But for that to happen, you're going to have to put a new heart in me. God, you do the heart work, as last week Brad talked about doing the hard work on the heart work. David knew, I can't do this alone, God. I can't do this on my own. There's no self-help book or weekend seminar that can create in me a clean heart. Only the said of God. I've got to have your heart, God. And then he says, renew a loyal spirit within me. In light of the public humiliation, embarrassment that I brought upon a nation, upon an innocent woman and her husband, renew implies that at one time he had possessed it. And maybe you're sitting here and say, I know what it feels like for the hand of God to be upon my life, but I need to renew God. I need a renewing and I need a clarity of my heart again. 
Renewing is an essential principle of the new nature that God has. He says, God, for some reason, for the last nine to 12 months, that loyal spirit's been interrupted, and I'm asking you to renew it. He says, do not banish me from your presence, verse 11, and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Do not banish me. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. What's interesting is that David knew God's presence and the Holy Spirit had been upon him from a young man. 1 Samuel 16, 13 says, so as David stood there among his brothers. Now that he's a teenage boy, 1 Samuel 16. Samuel took the flask of oil he had brought and anointed David with the oil and the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. See, the consequences of the sin he can't run from, but the separation of God he cannot deal with. And he begs God, do not banish me from your presence. And when you put that Holy Spirit on me when Samuel anointed me, don't take that from me, please. Restore to me the joy. Maybe David was thinking about what had happened to Saul, and he watched what happened as Saul had allowed the Holy Spirit to be lifted from him because in 1 Samuel 16, 14, it says, the Spirit of the Lord had left Saul, and the Lord sent a tormenting spirit that filled him with depression and fear. David's saying, God, I don't want that. I worked with Saul. I watched what he became, and God, I'm looking at what I'm becoming, and I'm asking you to do not banish me from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore and make me willing to obey you. In verse 13, he says, then I'll teach your ways to rebels. Notice, God, when you get through with me, then I want to work with people that have been through some of the same things I've been through. He says, I will teach your ways to rebels. Remember twice he'd said, I've rebelled against you in Psalm 51 and Psalm 32. And they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood. Now he starts to articulate the things he had done. I've shed blood. Oh, God who saves, then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips. In other words, I've been covering this up. And now, Lord, let my lips, my mouth, let it praise you. Because you do not desire a sacrifice or I'd offer one. You don't want to burn offering. See, David's not looking for a reprieve for doing wrong. He's longing for a restorative process to his life. Don't give, him a re- don't give me a reprieve, God. I want back what I once knew. I want to go back. I want to get back to where I know you and I have been before. He says, you do not desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. Realize who he is. He's the king of Israel. He has access to anything tangible that if he thought that could move God, he could do it. But he says, your pleasure, God, is not in sacrificed animals. Your pleasure, God, is in a restored individual. And then he makes a statement, verse 17. I know what I've done, God, but the sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. 
You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. David receives it this way, but then he starts to realize, wait a minute, there's repercussions for what I've done. He said, now would you look with favor on Zion and help her? David says, you know, God, by some of the stuff I've done, it's had repercussions among your people. Would you rebuild the walls of Jerusalem? Lord, when I sinned, it wasn't just me. It affected my family. It affected my legacy. It affected my city. He says, then you'll be pleased with sacrifices offered. When? When finally I, God, get myself in a position of restoration and renewal. He leans back on that hased of God. The sacrifice you desire is a broken heart. David recognizes that his sin had not only injured him, but it had concentric circles that just went out from him. David starts to plead not only for his own life, not just for the baby's life, but God, would you restore back your people? I've harmed your people. Would you visit your city? In fact, if anything, the city that David had built. God, would you come back to your city? What would happen if we would catch the heart of David and we would ask ourselves, can he really forgive? And ask myself, am I really sorry? Because something's going to happen as it did with David. What would happen if each of us would pray as David prayed in verse 18? God, blot out the stains in my life. God, would you wash me? Would you purify me? Things that I've done are always before me. They haunt me day and night. And God, I want you to restore me, and I'm going to then teach rebels your way. But not just me, God. I want a reverberation. Would you look with favor on Scottsdale? God, would you look with favor on Phoenix? Would you look with favor on Glendale? Would, would you look with favor on Cave Creek? God, because it starts here first in my heart. Me owning me and coming before you, my God. I close with this, Romans 6, verse 16 through 18. Don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey. You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Thank God 
once you were slaves of sin, but now you wholeheartedly obey this teaching we've given you. Now you're free from your slavery to sin and you've become slaves to righteous living. I'm going to ask you to bow your head. This is not a message of degradation, of shame. This is about a loving God who longs to illuminate, who longs to purify, who longs to wash. But he can't take what you don't bring. You can't offer to him if you continue to sweep it under life, under the rug. It's not really there. Wasn't that bad? But yet, some of you, there's a tormenting day and night. Every before you, that can end right here, right now. Because I'm here today to tell you, he can forgive. He can take your sins and cast them as far as the east is from the west. He longs to remove the pain. We read a man that was writhing in the pain of what he had done. But he knew how to get the attention of God. I believe that this weekend has been pointedly for people that are in this room that there's some things in your life That Psalm 51, you needed to hear it. Because there's some areas that you need to bring to him. And right where you are, sitting there, we've watched it in the services. As the hand of God began to melt people's hearts, we watched as men would go to their knees and women begin to weep before the Lord. Because they felt the love of God. You say, I, I don't need to, I shouldn't be feeling his love right now. I should be feeling his anger. But God says, no, I'm, I'm coming to you with my said. My irresistible love is over you right now. No matter what you've done, he's reaching to show you. He can purify. He can wash. He can blot out. That's the God that is able to forgive. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about Gateway Church, please visit us at gatewaylife.com. Have a great week.